Thanks for checking out this video. My name's Kiara, and I hope you enjoy this message from Redemption Church. All right, good morning. We guys sound good when you sing, so that's a good start for the day. Uh, I just read our text for the morning. We're in Luke chapter 18. Uh, we've got 13 verses here this morning uh, to look at. We're in uh, the second to last week of our summer-long series entitled Summer Camp. I told you at the beginning of the series when we ended it, everyone would be going back to school. So who went back to school this week? Yay, all the bus drivers rose their hand. Cool. So um, yeah, we're, we're uh, wrapping up. We're near the end. And the whole point of this series of summer camp is to take us back to those nostalgic moments of camp. Some of you had those moments. Some of you didn't. This morning, we're going to look at the story of a guy who, if you did go to camp, he was the kid at camp that did everything right. He always took notes. He didn't cut in line at food. He didn't cheat in dodgeball, right? He cleaned his bunk every morning. Uh, the kid that did everything right, and uh, he was at the teacher's pet, and everybody kind of liked him, right? He's that kid. And so we're going to look at that kid this morning. He has a title in the scripture, The Rich Young Ruler. We actually get that title, Rich Young Ruler, from the three different stories uh, that are told about him in the three different gospels that tell this story, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they build up the case of who this guy is, the rich young ruler. And so from all three stories, that's where we get the title. And this story is an astonishing story. It's, it's really startling. It, it was startling to the disciples. It was certainly startling to the rich young ruler. It would have been astonishing to the religious people and the irreligious people who were standing around Jesus uh, because it changed their perspective so much. And it's even uh, startling to us as modern readers as we look in and say, whoa, what was Jesus thinking? What was he saying? And so this morning, we're going to see either four or five astonishing things. I say either four or five because we'll see where we get to at the end. And with those four or five astonishing things, we are also, excuse me, going to see a simple truth revealed in each of the astonishing statements that happen in the story. So an astonishment thing or astonishing thing, then a simple truth underneath that I'll point them out as we go. Here's where it starts. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher. Let's stop there. This is astonishment number one, and it's how this man approaches Jesus. This rich young ruler, as we read through the story, you can surmise that he might be a little bit prideful. Uh, he might think uh, pretty well of himself. Uh, he's going to ask some uh, really good questions, but he's going to ask them in an interesting way. Through all of the text of the scripture and all of the texts that were contemporary to the scripture, there is not one other instance where a Jewish person and refers to a Jewish rabbi as good teacher. It's not a reference or a introduction that really makes sense or would have been uh, in their filter. Jesus tells him why. He says no one's good except God. And so to associate the teacher with God uh, in that way would have been kind of um, weird. And so when this guy says good teacher, it's an astonishing introduction. Commentators try to conjecture on why he referred to him as the good teacher, and they arrive at one of two guesses. One, uh, he is flattering Jesus. Kind of seems like a suck up. 
or he is um, saying good teacher because he's about to go toe-to-toe with Jesus. Toe-to-toe in the sense of, you've never met somebody like me. Everyone else, I understand why it is uh, that they need this teaching, um, but you haven't yet quite uh, met a rich, young ruler, check, 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 like me. So he's going to like step into the ring with Jesus in like a moral discussion or a moral debate. Before we go any further, this teaches us something about how we ought to approach Jesus. And that is not with any moral pride. Because when this man steps in with his moral pride, Jesus is going to step up and put him on his back. He, if he knew how Jesus was going to respond to him, would have never stepped into the ring with Jesus on this debate. Because what Jesus says is going to completely derail this guy's perspective of himself, of religion, and of God. When we come to church, when we open up the scripture, we must not do so with a spiritual pride. With the spiritual pride that says, I already know where this is going. With the spiritual pride that says, maybe there's a little bit I can learn, but there's nothing that could wreck me. No, this guy is as educated and as moral as any person in this room. He knew the scripture, I guarantee, better than anyone in this room. According to the text, he was more moral or looked like a better Christian than probably anyone in this room. And Jesus flattens him. The simple truth that this is revealing, by the way, is that all people are in need of redemption and freedom, dot, 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 even those who look like they have it all together. Isn't there this maybe unsaid kind of underlying thought that we have that really, if you're just good, it's okay? Like, if you really are just kind of a good person, I know there's conversation about hell and Jesus, but I mean, really, like, if you're better than majority. Or another competing thought with that is we look at certain people and life seems perfect for them and we think, yeah, they must be good. Like, they they kind of have it together. Their marriage seems good. Their kids seem to like them most of the time. Uh, they, They buy a new car every four years. Their house is nice. They live in the suburbs. Like, they must be, they must be okay. Well, this guy teaches us that all people are in need of redemption, even the ones who look like they have it all together. All people, the rich, the poor, the up, the down, the down, the out. Everyone is in need of it. And so this guy approaches Jesus in this kind of bold way. He says, good teacher. He asked a brilliant question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, this is a fantastic question. I hope every one of us answer this. This is not the problem. Great question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be in right standing with God? However, it's best understood for you. And so the spiritually prideful rich young ruler walks in. He looks at Jesus, who is the right guy to answer the question, and says, what do I got to do to be good? And Jesus responds to him like this. First off, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. It's kind of explaining my first point. But then he goes in to say this. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. This is astonishing. 
how Jesus responds or Jesus' path to salvation. It's astonishing even for us as modern readers because we look in and we go, wait a minute. Isn't that the complete opposite of everything you've been saying for the last 17 chapters? Isn't that different? Like all of a sudden now you're saying, oh, just follow the Ten Commandments. What about all of that stuff you said to the Pharisees? Jesus almost appears to be contradicting himself. Now, on one hand, Jesus isn't contradicting himself because if an individual really could live up perfectly to the Ten Commandments and not sin, then sure, they would be in right standing with God. Jesus is trying to get this man to see that he's missing something. And this is the best way he feels like he can get it across. And what he's trying to get the the man to see is that he's missing grace. He's missing redemption. He's missing salvation through Christ. He's missing grace. And so Jesus goes about teaching the man that he's missing that this way. It teaches us, by the way, simple truth number two, which is this, that our good behavior can blind us from grace. Our good behavior can blind us from grace. Many of us think, no, our good behavior is the path to grace. Oh, clearly not in this story. No, our good behavior, or his, this man's good behavior, is actually the thing that stops him from experiencing grace. See, we would often say, ah, yes, that person is very sinful. That's why they can't see God's grace. Look how sinful, look how horrible they are. That's easy, normal thought. Jesus here is teaching the man, your good behavior is actually what's blinding you. Do you see that? Your attempt at morality is actually stopping you from experiencing Jesus. This is way scarier. Simple truth number two, our good behavior can blind us from grace. What Jesus is saying here, by the way, underneath that is just being a good person isn't enough. Just being the best person actually isn't enough. Doing everything right. Jesus doesn't even fight with him about whether or not the guy's lived up to all of the commandments because the next thing he says is, all these I've kept from my youth. Now, he's a rich young ruler. That's like a 22-year-old saying, back when I was younger. He says, all these I've kept from my youth. He is moral. He is a good person. He is the person that every one of us would look at and say, that's the guy we want on our team. That's the person we need in our church. That's the one we should elevate and point to. And Jesus, what he says next is astonishing. Astonishment number three, what Jesus requests. He says, one thing you still lack. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. It's astonishing because Jesus hasn't said it in this way to anybody else. It's astonishing because Jesus has really just met this man. They haven't yet talked about money at all. It's astonishing because up to this point, the conversation has been universal. It's universal that people want to know um, what eternal life looks like. 
It's universal to approach religion or a religious figure to ask questions about the purpose of life. It's universal to think that morality will save us. These are all very universal truths or universal ideas. And the man is coming to Jesus, and now Jesus is going to take what has been very universal and make it really specific. He's going to say, one thing you still lack, like a master surgeon finding the right spot. He's going to look right into this man's heart and say, here, here is what you worship more than me. And we'll get into what that thing is. But before we do that, we have to see here that Jesus does the same for us. That he can look right into our heart and say, ah, here's the idol you're worshiping. See, we have this tendency as humans to idol worship. I call it idol hop. And so imagine you're standing on something uh, and it's like you're in a little, you know, pond or something and uh, you're standing on it and it begins to sink. Okay, what you're standing on being the idol, the thing you worship most. Uh, but it begins to sink as in uh, it's, it's taken away from you. Uh, it, it, it was your muscle, your strength, your body, and you got old and, uh, and so it's gone. And so what do we do? We hop over to the next closest idol and we begin to worship that. When I was younger, um, whenever I would go through like a heartbreaking breakup or something like that, um, you know, like high school kind of thing, um, what I would do in my mind is always go, hop, okay, now I'm going to be the best athlete. What was I doing? I was idol hopping. We do this all the time. We're worshiping our job. We're worshiping our career. uh, We're worshiping our savings account. We're worshiping the way we look. We're worshiping our family relationship. Something happens and we go, well, I'll just hop over here. This will be my thing. And everything we hop on that isn't Christ will sink. And we'll be idle hopping our whole lives. That's the universal truth in this. But Jesus, what's interesting is he doesn't go, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And then hop into, and some of you are going to have this idol and some of you are going to have that idol. No, instead what Jesus does is he then goes all from the universal truth and he actually stays specific into the one idol that this man is dealing with. By the way, before I move on, um, simple truth number three is this, and this is what we learned from, from this line in the story, that we can be exceptionally moral and still lack righteousness. We can be exceptionally moral and still lack righteousness. You can be a really good church attender, a really good person, a really good Christian, and still lack right standing with God. You can check every box and still not, in this story, have eternal life. I like that he asked them about eternal life because that one, I think, cuts through some of the muck and gets us right at home. Whoa, where am I spending eternity? Jesus is saying, you, superstar moral person, And I know sometimes when we use the word morality in church nowadays, we think, oh, those are the bad people, right? The bad people are the moral people. Well, those are like the Pharisees. In modern language, we would say, no, you, clean, safe, diligent, hardworking, church attending, 
volunteer, tither, you might still be missing out on righteousness. You might not be okay with God. You say, how do you know? How do you know? Jesus says, well, just one thing you lack, just sell everything, give it away, and then come follow me. Just be willing to surrender the deepest idol of your heart and come after me. Then you know. That's how you know that. Now, Jesus, he's going to get more and more specific, though, into this guy's idol. See, this is how the man responded. He says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad. Now, this is not like sad, like, oh, I'm sad, school started again, or like, oh, I'm sad, the Browns are horrible. Like, this is like sad, I'm devastated. This is sad, why, why am I even trying anymore? This is sad, like salvation all of a sudden seemed impossible to him. This is sad, like the possibility, he thought he was so close, he actually thought he was good, he was okay, and now he's devastated because salvation seems as impossible as anything. Some of us have felt the sadness. I'm not talking about sorrow, right? There's natural sorrow in life. No, this sadness is when the thing we're worshiping is taken from us and we feel like life has lost its purpose. Like, why am I even around anymore? My wife, Lindsay, preached last week. She did this incredible job of explaining the difference between purpose and assignment. Assignment is something that we do. Purpose is something that we are something that we have in Jesus. This man was sad because what he worshiped most, what his purpose was, was his wealth. And Jesus said, okay, fine, just give that up and come after me. And he goes, what? I already give you 10%. Isn't that enough? And he would have been as a good moral dude in that time. This takes us though into the really astonishing thing that Jesus says, number four. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There's like four different guesses at what Jesus meant by the whole camel needle thing. Really what it comes down to is he was just saying something ridiculous. Like it is just, it's, it's, it's really hard It's astonishing that Jesus says this, and particularly that culture, because of how messed up they were in their thinking, you're going to see the disciples respond with, whoa, 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 whoa. If that dude can't be saved, then no one can be saved. Because their idea, and they read the scripture through the cultural context of money meant blessed by God. Money meant morality and righteousness. That's what it means. That's how you get it. And so when he, Jesus says this astonishing thing, astonishing thing number four, Jesus looks in and he goes, money is spiritually dangerous. And it actually hurts our chances at salvation. This is the only specific thing in scripture that Jesus ever says this about. He doesn't say it about any of the other idols that we could have lined up or any of the other things in life that we can go after. He reserves this statement for one thing and one thing only, money. He says, money is spiritually dangerous. 
The fact that Jesus says this should also make us look at any modern um, preaching that elevates money as God's greatest blessing to us as ridiculous. What not it sad that, that there is a large part of Christian culture that looks at money as the symbol of God's blessing? Why would God say, the biggest blessing I can get you is also the most dangerous thing I can give you? And before we go too far, by the way, Tim Keller says this. He's brilliant, right? And he says, here's the Christian view of money. Uh, he says it this way. He says, uh, the gospel doesn't look as money as good as the capitalists do. Money, or the, the gospel also doesn't look as money as, as dangerous or as evil as the socialists do. Christianity looks at money and it sees the dangers on one side and it sees the benefits on the other, but it applies both to both sides. In other words, the gospel has this different view of money than any system we can create in this world. But Jesus gives a warning. It's spiritually dangerous. Why? Let me give you a couple of examples. One reason money is spiritually dangerous is that it has a tendency to lead us into sin. Cheat on your taxes this year? Ever um, charge more hours than you should have? Raise the price because the client wasn't looking carefully? I mean, I was in fourth grade running a poker ring on the bus, okay? $1.50 at a time, right? Money has this way of tempting us to sin. And what starts out small, yeah, I was really there those extra 15 minutes. Gross and gross and gross, because sin always grows. Money has a way of tempting us into sin. Money also has a way of deceiving ourselves or leading to self-deception. We say things like, well, I'm not, I'm not greedy. I mean, I don't, even, I don't even make a lot of money. And we associate in our heads greed with wealth instead of associating in our heads greed with the desire for things. Money has this way of self-deceiving us where we look at other people and maybe because of what they drive or what they wear and they say, I know they're the greedy ones. They're the ones who don't get it. Money has a way of even self-deceiving ourselves in our own morality or attempts to please God. You'll hear Christians say, um, either typically not publicly because it's kind of voodoo, but they maybe say it like in their own minds or their own hearts. They say, well, you know, I understand all of this. And some people are like, I get all of this because I don't buy the, those the nice of cars or, or, or that, or, or I tithe. And some people say, well, you know, I, I understand money because I tithe. But they're actually deceiving themselves because they don't actually even tithe. They, they don't. They just say that they do to make themselves feel better. You see how deceptive money can be? It can even make us lie about our own righteousness. Money has this way of being self-deceptive. Another way money is self-deceptive is we think all the time, oh, oh, as I move into the next stage, then I'll be generous. You know, statistically, that's not true. Statistically speaking, the more money a Christian makes, the less as a percentage they give. Which means, at least in America, when Christians get more money, it doesn't make them more generous, it makes them more self-centered. Statistically speaking. 
Money is dangerous, Jesus says. Money is dangerous also because it can create false security. We can begin to think, if I just have enough in the bank, if I just have the right job, if I just take care of everything properly, if I just get to baby step seven on Ramsey's plan, then I'm going to be okay. But what do we know? Money doesn't save us from the worst of life. Money doesn't protect us from tragedy, betrayal, divorce, death. Money doesn't protect us from that which hurts the most. So it's a false security. You know what money has a tendency to do? As it's being a false security? It has a tendency to make it so that we don't work on our character because we think we're okay because of what we have. And so then when those horrible things do happen, our character isn't where it needs to be because we thought money would protect us. And lastly, money has a way of making us prideful, of looking at people who don't make as much and thinking that we're better. Or uh, particularly, I think nowadays what we do is we associate all genius with anyone who has money. Oh, they're rich, put them on the board. Or, oh, they, they do well. They must be smart. Or they don't even make any money. Why would I listen to that person? Money has this way of making us prideful. And Jesus looks and he says, guys, money is so dangerous. So dangerous. And the disciples go, whoa. Then who can be saved? Do you get the power of that question? Jesus looks and says, it's hard for rich people to get saved. And the disciples go, well, then we're done. Let's just ship this thing in. And Jesus responds with this. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What's impossible with man is possible with God. What Jesus is saying, he goes, oh yeah, it's really hard. Particularly when it comes to money, he said, it is really hard to view it through the proper lens. In fact, it's so hard, the only way you can do it is as if you experience grace. The only way to properly view it is to experience redemption which leads us to simple truth number four. Redeemed people experience freedom in their finances. This is the good news. If somebody gave me an almond joy and a pack of peanut butter M&Ms, I would look at both of them and immediately know which one deserves to go in the trash and which one should be hoarded. Peanut butter M&Ms, of course, are delicious. Almond joys should be discontinued. Right. Statements of fact. You can leave. <laughs> See, when we look at the story of the rich young ruler, I'll get back to the candy in a moment. When we look at the story of the rich young ruler, typically two thoughts, I think, pop into our head. The first is, whew, I'm glad that's not a universal thing. He just said that to that guy. If that was your thought, it means your heart is no different than his. It means your heart is no different than his. 
The other way we view the story is we go, what a tragedy. He couldn't sacrifice something so valuable to get salvation. And herein lies the second problem. See, prior to redemption and grace, we still look at money and we think it's peanut butter M&Ms. After we've experienced grace, we see they're sure money has value. It can do things. But to me, it's just an almond joy. If those crazies over there said, can I have your almond joy? Take it. Who cares? When the Christian has experienced the depth of redemption that's possible as it relates to their finances, then they're free to just start tossing almond joys to people. Why? Because they're free. They're free. See, the point here is not how much you give to your church. The point is not, did you sell everything? The point is, have you experienced redemption so deeply that now when it comes to money, you're free? This man wasn't. I want Reagan to be a voracious reader. Reagan's my daughter, if you don't know. I want her to be such a good reader that she can explore the depths and the riches of reading. And so how do I teach her how to read? What's she got to do first? Learn her alphabet. Now, how crazy would it be if when Reagan got done reading her alphabet, if I just said, awesome, we're done. And the rest of her life, she just went around going, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That's the most I'll ever sing out loud in church. And she never took knowing the alphabet further to actually reading a book. Well, that would be so useless. Let me create a, a metaphor for you. With all of this in mind, what do we do now as people of means, assuming pretty much everyone in the room is? What do we do? First off, we tread carefully because money's spiritually dangerous and we don't want it to lead us to self-deception or pride or any of the other things I mentioned. So we tread carefully. The second thing we do is we pray fervently that whenever we begin to see money having a hold on our heart that it isn't, we pray, Jesus, I repent. What's the third thing we do? We live generously. We live generously. You say, but how do you live generously? That seems impossible. Ah, yes, it is. It is impossible with man, but it's possible with God. See, in the story, there's two rich young rulers. Did you see them both? Who's the first one? The one that the story is all about is a rich young ruler, but there's a second rich young ruler, Jesus. He's richer, might even be younger. He's 31 at the time. And he's the ruler. He certainly rules more than the other guy. And the two rich young rulers in the story are pictures of the two types of Christian generosity. The first type of Christian generosity, the rich young ruler shows us. He would have followed the Old Testament, the Old Testament tithe, which is 10% of what we earn back to the kingdom of God or the mission of ministry in the Old Testament. And we see that throughout. And this guy would have symbolized that he would have practiced that. And so uh, as Christians, we have to practice the tithe of 10% back or giving, uh, you say back, back to the one who owns it in a way, God, right, for the purpose of ministry. That's why it was given the purpose of supporting our church, the, the purpose of taking care of each other, to the purpose of advancing the kingdom of God. That was the, uh, the, the level that the rich and really the first one, that's the level he could get to. 
And so as Christians, all of us who have experienced grace and redemption, I would hope we would at least want to get to the level of the guy who didn't even make it. Like that dude, he's not even in. So I would at least want to get to that level. The second rich young ruler, though, Jesus, teaches us, teaches us the value of generosity in the new covenant, the second value, sacrifice, sacrifice. So Jesus won't give up a tenth of his power. He'll give up all of it on the cross. He won't give up a tenth of his inheritance. He'll give up all of it for all of us. Jesus uh, won't live out his youth like the rich young ruler, and however he wants, he will surrender his life at an early age. How much of it? All of it. Showing us the value of Christian generosity, biblical generosity in the new covenant, sacrifice. So back to the Reagan story. As learning your alphabet is to reading, tithing is to biblical generosity. Let me say it again. As learning your alphabet is to reading, tithing is to biblical generosity. With what aim? To be free of something that Jesus calls spiritually dangerous. To take all of the pressure, the weight, the striving of money and say, I hailed Jesus as king and now it doesn't own me anymore. That, my friend, is freedom. That is freedom. You say, okay, this still seems impossible to me. I don't even know where to begin. Oh, no, you do. You do know where to begin. We actually learn where to begin from the rich young ruler. We'll just start with what the Old Testament says. Now, some people will say, ah, that's the Old Testament. I'm free from that. Be nervous spiritually whenever you use your freedom to be less moral than the Old Testament. Can I say that again? Be nervous when you use your freedom in Christ to be less moral than the Old Testament. No, instead, what the freedom should do is say, now I can free to be even crazier than what, what the old rule was. And yeah, that might require sacrifice. I'll just speak personally. Uh, Lindsay and I, we, you know, we have this discussion. So we will never buy a house, a car, a uh, article of clothing, a vacation, whatever, that will inhibit our ability to tithe with the first 10% and be generous with the other 90. And so we will orchestrate our lives to make sure that 10% comes first and there's freedom in the other 90. Now, guess what? There's incredible freedom with that other 90. And so I'm never going to tell you what you can and cannot do with that 90. 
And when people start doing that, things get weird. That's why you have the Holy Spirit. You say, well, when do I start something like this? What age? What stage? Money's self-deceptive. Here's what I mean. If we're not generous at one age and stage, we will probably not be generous at any age and stage. There will always be a reason to push it off into the future. Why? Because money is spiritually dangerous. Next week, I'm going to tell you the story. See, this is a bad pastor trick. Typically, when you're going to talk about money the next week, you don't tell them. But next week, I'm going to tell you the story of a guy who was the complete opposite of the rich young ruler, who experienced freedom in his money and the joy it produced in him. Some of us are still uneasy right now. It's possible. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and go follow him. You're still standing on an idol. I want you to be free. Let's pray. Father, free us. Free us from the hold money can have on our hearts. Free us from thinking it's what gives us worth. Free us from thinking it's the only way to have fun. Free us from thinking it's the answer to our biggest problems. Free us from waking up every day and worrying about it. Free us from making it the greatest aim of our lives. Free us from deceiving ourselves in our conversations. Free us from the pride that it may have produced in us. And free us to be generous sacrificially generous, just as you were, Jesus. Free us to organize our lives in such a way where we can say no to so much now because we find a deeper value in you. Free us from being afraid that we're not going to make it. Free us from not even viewing it anymore like it's most valuable and that this is some like trick from you. Because oh, Father, our hearts still see it sometimes when you ask for it and we say, oh, but why would you ask that? Instead of saying, oh, compared to you, you can just have that. 
Father, we can't arrive here on our own doing. We can only arrive here through redemption. So set us free. Set us free, please. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video. If you want to learn more about our church, go ahead and click the link in the description or head on over to experienceredemption.com. Have a great week, guys.